Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 34 of the Rogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In this season, we've been looking at the ways that our cultural viewpoints, our spiritual traditions, and personal experiences impact our view of the Bible. And today, we're honored to learn from Dr. Amy Erickson about her awesome and super insightful new commentary on the book of Jonah and ways to better appreciate this story through academic and various theological lenses. In today's podcast, Dr. Amy Erickson talks about Christian and Jewish understandings of the book of Jonah, why Jonah has been viewed as both the villain in the story, as well as a type of Christ. She discusses why Jonah has a theological problem with God. She shares insights into Islamic interpretations of Jonah's prophecy and gives fascinating insights on how to understand the odd ending of the story. The episode ends with her personal takeaways on Jonah, and she shares advice for all of us who are studying this complicated but super exciting story. Dr. Amy Erickson is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible and the Director of the Masters of Theological Studies program at the Ilif School of Theology. You can get notes from today's podcast, watch the video clips, and get links to our new book at mikedogato.org. Here's our conversation. Dr. Erickson, I'm super excited about your new commentary, and I love the story of Jonah. And I wanted to find out from you first about just your interest in what led you to write an entire commentary on the book of Jonah. A big one, too. <laughs> big, massive volume on Jonah. Everybody asks me, like, wait, isn't it that like two pages in the Bible? How did you possibly squeeze 450 pages of commentary out of this book? So, um, yeah, so I wasn't interested in Jonah, believe it or not. I wrote my dissertation on the book of Job and was working primarily with the poetry of Jeremiah and some of the other prophets and in the Psalms. And um, my dissertation advisor, Leon Xiao, who's a dear friend and amazing mentor, and the editor of the Illumination series, which is where the commentary appears, asked me if I wanted to do the volume on Jonah. And my first response was like, did I displease you? Did I <laughs> no, do you not think I'm capable of more than working on a children's story? So my assumptions about the book of Jonah really informed my response. So I thought it was a book about God's universal love, which is great, right? But if you are interested in the sort of weighty theological questions that a book like Job raises, and you think that's what Jonah is about, that it's just about this sort of flat tale of a prophet sort of being schooled by God um, about his xenophobia or about his um, sort of resistance to doing God's will, then you're going to think the book is maybe more for kids and not that interesting for people who want to pose more interesting questions to the book. So as you begin to explore, like, how different traditions look at Jonah. Can you talk a little bit about like, like maybe the Christian tradition versus the Jewish versus the Islamic tradition? Yeah, yeah. So this is when it started to get interesting. So I assumed that the book of Jonah was a lesson in being more obedient and in understanding that God's love is so much bigger than what we think, right? Which is, which is lovely and I think an important message. Um, but that's a very Christian understanding of the book. So for Christians, Jonah becomes kind of an, the antagonist or the buffoon of the story, the fool, and not in the sort of Shakespearean sense of a fool who actually has some wise things to say, mm. but who is kind of the butt of the joke in the book of Jonah. And so he emerges as a really flat character um, who... God is basically trying to get him to understand that God's love is not just for Israel, right? And so Christians have read it as, oh, this is awesome. All along, God has been saying that God's love is not just for the Jews, but is in fact for the entire world. And so Nineveh emerges as the character of the Gentiles who know how to respond to God's uh, offer of grace to God's threat of judgment, 
you know, so Jonah goes into Nineveh and with five words of prophecy, all of Nineveh turns around and says, we believe in God. You know, they, they dress up their animals in sackcloth and acid, ashes, which again is great for kids, right? And um, that's, that's the lesson, right? And Jonah is angry about this in chapter four. And Christians say, yeah, well, those Jews, they don't want to share God's love. Isn't that just the way they are? So the kind of subtle and not so subtle anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism in the book or in these readings of the book emerges basically over the centuries. So it's, it's, it's kind of a consistent presence in Christian readings. Um, that's not always the case in books that see or in uh, Christian works that see Jonah as a sort of type of Christ. So there's kind of this tension between Jonah exhibits these typological characteristics of Jesus, so that when the sailors go to throw him overboard, he agrees to be sacrificed so that they can be saved. So early Christian readers saw that and they said, oh yeah, see, that's just like Jesus. Um, that he goes into the belly of the whale, of course, and then emerges three days later alive. That's a type of resurrection uh, for early Christians. So really early on when Christians started reading this book, they weren't so weighted down with this kind of anti-Judaic, supersessionistic, superior understanding of Christianity. They actually saw it as being very much in line with what comes in the New Testament and what comes with Jesus. It's it's really um, a little bit later, like with Augustine and with Jerome, even whom I adore as a biblical interpreter, um, that Jonah becomes the the villain in the story, and that interpretation runs through Christian readings uh, for a incredibly long time. It's incredibly persistent, even though it appears in different guises. And by contrast, you ask about the Jewish readings they see Jonah almost as a member of the family. So Augustine said something about Israel being carnal, right? And uh, Daniel Boyarin is a scholar of um, early Judaism and early Christianity says that some Jewish interpreters almost wear that as a badge of honor, you know? So it's like uh, the kind of uh, reclaiming of the language of queer in LGBT communities, you know, so you're going to call me queer, I'll use that as a way to actually identify myself in a way that feels true. So carnal Israel means that they care about the body, they care about the family, they care about the stories. And so Jonah, for them, is like a family member. And you know, when you're a family member, you're allowed to screw up and not be a complete failure. So you're your your screw-ups, your mistakes um, are seen in context. They don't completely define you. So they try to um, situate him in the family of Israel and think about him as a member of the Israelite community. And so when God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, a lot of Jewish interpreters will say, well, he didn't want to go because he knew, because he's a prophet, right, that Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, was eventually going to destroy northern Israel, you know, so he was trying to protect Israel from that fate. He was speaking on Israel's behalf, not speaking, but in not going, he was acting in Israel's interest. And so he's seen as a much more complex character. And... I hope I'm not going on too much here. You got me that's, all. I, that's awesome. No, please. That's beautiful. And so um, the tension between God and Jonah is what sort of drives the book forward in Jewish interpretation. So Jonah's complaints, his questions, his resistance is taken seriously. And God's demands or commands or requests of Jonah are seen as potentially unreasonable. So the idea that a prophet who spoke in prophetic literature to Israel is supposed to go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, you know, the Assyrians are the big baddies in the Hebrew Bible, um, that he's supposed to go there and find an audience for a message from this minor deity in the realm of the empire, right? is ludicrous. 
And so that's sort of, so I don't want to lose the humor of the book hmm. uh, and say that it's not a funny book. It is, but I think it's funny in a way that makes God seem a little absurd and Jonah's response equally absurd. And it sort of plays it big so that we can really kind of laugh and appreciate the insanity of this whole thing, you know, which is that the God of Israel, Israel's special God, is now in the post-exilic period and with sort of language of monolatry building and monotheism kind of coming into view, God is now the God of the whole world. And how is this going to work? So our God who has our interests at heart, says Israel, now also has the Assyrian Empire's interests in mind, also the God there. Like, what would this look like? And so I think the absurdity of it is very much on display in the book. Yeah, and I just love how you just mentioned kind of the heart of Jonah, like knowing, especially in the Jewish tradition, like knowing full well, prophetically, that the Assyrian Empire would come and destroy Israel in the future. And like, if that's true, then Jonah has, like, he ha he's wounded, he's hurt, he doesn't understand this message, like, why would you send me to go and preach this this message uh, so that they can then be saved temporarily? It, it doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Well, and a lot of Christian readers, Jewish readers as well, a lot of readers will say that Jonah's problem is with Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go allow for the salvation of Nineveh, preach a message that might lead to the salvation of Nineveh. When in fact, the text, especially in chapter one and in chapter four as well, emphasizes that Jonah's problem is with God. So he's running away, not from Nineveh per se, according to the text, but away from the face of God. So twice it's Jonah flees from the face of God. And in chapter four, we learn, kind of, sort of, <laughs> how much it's connected, we're not sure. But in chapter four, Jonah says, like, I knew you were going to do this. I know that you, I knew you were going to be compassionate, that you weren't going to uphold justice in this situation. So it's really a theological dispute between God and Jonah um, that's really driving the action of the book. And not so much the character of Nineveh, you know, even though the Assyrian Empire is in the background here, um, they're sure as heck not acting like the Assyrian Empire. Yeah. And it, and it is kind of um, like you mentioned, like the humor in this, like part of the humor for me was like, OK, Jonah, you you believe you're worshiping the God of the entire universe. And this God is telling you to go to Nineveh to go do something. And you just are like, no, I'm going the opposite direction. And yeah. um, and even amidst everything, he is so disobedient uh, to this to the God of the world. And so that, that to me is also very funny too. Yes, it's hilarious. Well, and one of the things that becomes clear as you're reading as well is that everyone else is submitting to this God. No questions asked. People who have <laughs> never heard of this deity are like, right, you're the God of the whole world. We got it, you know, quickly. And Jonah, the whole time, no matter what God does, Jonah is like, no, <laughs> no, I still think you're lame. So it's very, it is, it's, it's very funny. One of my, um, my friends who uh, has talked about this text with me a lot, refers to some movie where he talks about God is like this guy chasing after his hat. You know, so the hat is like sort of bouncing around on the sidewalk and God is like totally preoccupied with tracking down this sort of wayward hat, this wayward prophet. And you wonder if that's sort of about God's commitment to this prophet, to Israel, to this people, even though the movement toward God becoming God to the whole world is super problematic um, for Israel's interests, for the prophet's interests. Like, how do you even function as a prophet in this new yeah. realm, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was funny because um, I was I was reading the, the story to my daughter. She's 15. And she knew the story, you know, as a little girl. 
And so I was reading to her right now as a teenager, like going through each chapter. And her response to me was like, it seems like God's trolling Jonah the entire time. Like, <laughs> that's her response. Like God, he knows that Jonah has no interest in doing this, but God's like making him do it. And then like all throughout, especially the last chapter where you have like God makes the plant to give Jonah some shade and then appoints a worm to kill the plant. Right. It's just like constant, like poor Jonah. <laughs> he just doesn't want to do it. I know. And all these, you know, I mean, I, I am, you know, deeply uh, rooted in Christianity myself. So when I make fun of Christians, it's from the inside. Um, but all these Christians are like, hmm, hmm, hmm. you know, Jonah is so disobedient. <laughs> like, since when do we think that we are supposed to submit totally and completely to some authority authority outside of ourselves. Like, what does that actually look like? And why is God insistent that Jonah get on board with God's plan? I mean, so if God is the God of the whole world, why not choose somebody a little more compliant? And it's almost um, like I was just teaching uh, in a class on body and sexuality about the story of Jacob mm. and wrestling with God or the angel or the man or whoever appears at the Javik. And there's a way in which God appreciates these sort of encounters with people who resist, who wants to kind of get into the messy mix of things with human beings and sort out relationally the hard stuff, you know, who, who doesn't want the like, you know, sort of just lie down and take it kind of people. So even with Abraham, when Abraham is saying, you know, are you sure you want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and coming back and challenging God over and over again, what if there are 50 righteous people hmm. there? Will you still destroy it? And God's like, hmm, uh, no, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there are 50 righteous. And Abraham comes back and says, well, what if there are 45? You know, and they sort of bargain it down. I can't remember where they end up, maybe 20 or something like that. Um, and I, I think that the role of the prophet in part is to offer this kind of lively challenge to God, that God actually welcomes, um, you know, people other than sycophants in God's universe, that God wants to hear the challenges and respond to human complaints. So it's a really interesting relational portrait that emerges here. Yeah. And I think like that matched with what you said in the beginning about kind of the more Jewish reading of really Jonah is wounded like by this, like he, he knows that this nation is going to destroy his people, his family. And if you look at it through that lens of being like a wounded prophet and then like, God, why would you let, like, want me to even do this? This is, this is the nation that's going to destroy my people my family, my grant, you know, everybody that I love, like, I don't understand. And, and, and in that way, like you see the heart of Jonah, like that disobedience is like the heart of Jonah. Yeah. Well, and it's very consistent with other prophets who challenge God's desire to completely destroy Israel. Right. So you see this initially with Moses. So the people build the golden calf. And um, God says, I'm just going to destroy them all. And Moses challenges that decision and says, well, he appeals to God's vanity, which is an old, <laughs> old trope, you know, um, a, a trick that works almost every time <laughs> saying other peoples will think you're lame if you destroy your own people. So think about your reputation here. Uh, don't destroy Israel. So there's a long tradition of prophets speaking back to God, trying to temper God's judgment. So it's all sort of upside down in Jonah because it sounds like to the uh, on the surface that Jonah is actually advocating for the destruction of Nineveh. But of course, set in context, as you say, he's actually advocating for the saving of Israel by potentially saying that you need to enact your justice, your judgment on Nineveh in time to save Israel. Yeah. And that's where it makes it such a complex story 
like looking at it through that lens because Jonah just wants to protect Israel, wants to protect his family and um, and not being able to compute like this message. Like, I don't understand why you would want me to help to save this nation that will eventually destroy us. Like, this is the God that I worship. Like, right. I don't, it doesn't, it, it, this is like the problem of evil is all wrapped into this. Yeah, well, and that's a word, evil, that appears throughout the book. And I think that it's pressing us to ask the question, where does evil reside? What does evil look like? Who's capable of evil and in what circumstances? And I think even God is questioned in terms of God's decisions uh, about whether these are ultimately evil decisions. So we sort of start at the beginning of Jonah with the evils in Nineveh, right? And then the sailors start asking, where has this evil come from? And Christian readers are like, well, Jonah, obviously, because he's so disobedient. Um, but there's another way in which you could say, especially with the way the sailors are pressing on Jonah, that the evil is ultimately coming from God. So God sends this destructive storm that puts everyone at risk and sort of forces the sailors' hands here. And so that they have to, what they say, like have innocent blood on their hands in order to save themselves and toss Jonah overboard. So although it's a light story, I think it does raise the question, you know, so what does God have to do with evil? How does God actually perpetuate evil in term, and while God is trying to get God's own way here? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's also like an interesting situation where you have um, Jonah like in the belly of the ship sleeping, right? And yeah. uh, meanwhile, this huge storm is going on, but he seems to be sound asleep through the entire thing. And then when he, when he gets woken up, he's like, Oh yeah, this is my God. Like everyone's all the, all everyone's praying to their gods, and Jonah's like, "Don't hey, this is because of me. This is my God who's doing this." And they're like, yeah. "They don't understand Jonah. Like, what are you talking about?" And you're like, "You're sleeping," and he's just like, "Kill me!" Like basically, just like throw me overboard. And I want to ask you, like, it's very curious because Jonah several times says like he wants to be killed. He he'd rather die right than follow through with this. Um, and that was like the first instance where he's like, throw me overboard because he'd rather die in this stormy ocean. They have to go through with this plan. He has no intention of going to Nineveh. Um, plan or be God's toady, you know? So the other thing that Jewish interpreters will say is that Jonah's been through this before with God. So in 2 Kings 14, Jonah is introduced as a prophet who's working for Jeroboam II, who is said by the Deuteronomist to have done what is evil in God's sight. And yet it was Jonah's job to announce the expansion of Israel's borders under this supposedly evil king. So Jewish interpreters say, Oh, yeah. You know, Jonah is just tired of supporting evil empires, basically, and doesn't want to be a part of God's sort of complicity with these injustices. So, of course, he's going to say no. And his only path toward resistance, I think, in the book, which is taking it to the extreme, of course, is to die. And so he's doing his damnedest to like get as deep as he can into the belly of the ship and then into the depths. And, you know, when he's swallowed by the big fish, he sings a psalm of thanksgiving, which is fascinating. So some people have asked, like, is he grateful that he thinks he has died? That assuming, you know, he's swallowed up by this fish, that's the end of me. Um, you know, it turns out that he's delivered and the fish is more like a lifeboat than, you know, a sinking submarine. Um, but at any rate, he is willing to die to get out of this relationship with God, this relationship that is 
I mean, you could argue God's pretty overbearing in terms of what God is insisting he do. And you see this in Jeremiah in particular. So in the laments or the confessions of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is always saying, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be your prophet. And yet God's word in me, Yahweh's word in me is like a fire in my bones. I can't help but speak it. So it raises questions like, does the prophet have any agency? Does the prophet have the right to say no? What is the responsibility of the prophet to speak God's word, but also balancing that with speaking back to God? And so it's almost like Jonah read the story with Moses where God says, okay, you're going to go and you're going to speak to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, like, I don't know, I feel like it's six different times. No, I'm not doing that. And God finds a way to sort of convince Moses to do what he wants him to do um, over and over and over again, despite his resistance. He says, fine, all right, we'll give you Aaron as a mouthpiece. I know you can't speak. It's fine. You're still going to do this anyway. It's almost like Jonah's like, oh, I know what's coming. I know you're going to make me do it. So I'm just going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. And that... um. So like that second chapter that you just mentioned where this where he breaks out into this song, the Psalm of Deliverance mm -hmm. is very curious, like any quotes from like Psalm 14 and a bunch of different Psalms. Like as you read it, it's like reading a Psalm, basically. It is. And, yeah. And, yeah. And I, what's like the um, and, I, and I've read that some scholars think that maybe that was an insertion after because it speaks of like his deliverance, even though he's possibly dying in the belly of this fish. Like, like, what's what's what do we make of that that psalm that he's singing? Yeah, I mean, I, it's actually there's a lot of precedent for having characters sort of take up in psalmic language or start to speak psalmic language. So you see this in Hannah's song, for example. Mm. So she goes to um, the 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 temple and she says, you know, I'm gonna give up my son. If you'll, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him up to um, serve the priests. And then when she has the child, she sings this song, Hannah's song, which gets picked up with Mary's song, the Magnificat in Luke. And so, um, so this is a sort of long tradition in the Hebrew Bible where characters, when they speak to God, often use the language of the Psalms. It's kind of like, you know, people who find themselves in terrible situations will recite like, the Lord's Prayer, you know, so that relying on a character, relying on the sort of set language of prayer to speak to God situates that character in the Israelite tradition and shows him as almost naturally speaking that language in a time of distress. Um, but, but yeah, so the question becomes why this psalm too? I also think that. Jonah likes to take these, these tropes or these metaphors from prophetic literature and turn them into literal uh, readings. So mm -hmm. the psalmist is saying, oh, you know, the waters have come over my head and I'm drowning. And Jonah is in the water, granted in the belly of the fish, um, literally drowning. So that it's sort of funny in this sense that these metaphors become literal mm. in each other in the hands of jonah oh yeah that is that is super interesting uh i didn't think about that that's so interesting well it's kind of uh, like with the oracles of the nations so in prophetic literature prophets say <laughs> oh, you know babylon's going down or nineveh's going down but they're doing this in israel right for the benefit of an israelite audience and in Jonah, he literally has to go to the enemy nation and proclaim this message. So it's like taking this idea that, well, of course you speak about, you know, the big bad empire in the comfort of the city square in Jerusalem to a, a friendly audience who's going to like cheer you on for this. Um, and Jonah then has to actually enact this in a very literal way and shows up how ridiculous it is. Yeah. and. Um... Going back to that, that's that um that psalm that he sings in the belly of the whale, and we're, and we're told later that it was for three days and three nights that he was in this belly of the whale. And I don't know when that psalm was 
was it at the end of the three days? Was it in the middle when he felt like he was dying? But there was that three days and three nights that Christ then references later on in the New Testament about three days and three nights. And there's that um, that imagery of like um, three days and three nights to get into the underworld um, idea. Yeah, so there are um, stories, the descent of Inanna or the descent of Ishtar, who is a Mesopotamian goddess. Um, and partly the way that she shows her power or the, the way the poem shows her power is that she goes down into the underworld and she emerges stronger than before. Um, you also see Baal going down into the underworld. So the stories of gods in Mesopotamia who, because of their special power, get to return from the land of the dead, which most of us don't get to do, um, speaks to that interest in crossing these kinds of borders. Yeah, so the language of three days and three nights also gets applied to Israel and its restoration or resurrection in the book of Hosea. So there's this mm. sense that these deaths, which result in a revivification or a renewal or a redemption of some sort um, in the history of the tradition, span a kind of three-day period which of course gets picked up in the New Testament with the death of Jesus, who um, on the third day is risen from the dead or rises from the dead. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, idea about three days and three nights. And also in the picture of Christ uh, going to the descent to go talk to the spirits in the underworld during this period of time. It's, all, it's a very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, we want to know th why three days, and that's what the tradition always says, you know, <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah. that's the time span that we're working with here in terms of, I don't know if they're, you know, you turn into a pumpkin after the third day, and you can't <laughs> come out without looking like a zombie or something like that, but, you know, that's... <laughs> so, so do you, um, do you some read that, that point in, in, uh, in Jonah 2, where he's in the belly of the fish and talking about kind of in in the belly of Sheol like he's actually he actually does die possibly and then is resurrected when he spit out of the fish is that an interpretation or is that is that well, not think right yeah i mean i think that what you get in the psalms especially in psalms of thanksgiving are these narratives they're not quite narratives but they're poems with a narrative movement where the psalmist is near death, right? So they are, they describe themselves as being in the belly of Sheol, being drowned by the chaotic waters. And then God intervening to bring them back up and eventually into the temple where they come before the Israelite congregation and offer thanks, offer thanksgiving offerings and vows to Yahweh saying, this is my story. This is how Yahweh saved me. And one of the things I think that as moderns uh, confuses us sometimes is that we think of death as like, you know, 1022, we're calling it time of death. You know, I watch Grey's Anatomy while I yeah. try. Yeah, <laughs> me, <night> also... <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I know and exactly what you're not... talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not how death works in uh, the Israelite world is a much more uh, extended process. And I think even we metaphorically talk about it this way, right? Mm. Like I almost died. I was pretty much dead. Mm. You know, so this language of having been at death's door or having even crossed over into the land of the dead and having been dragged out by this divine force is what's powerful for the Israelites and what's powerful in Jonah's story. So he's like going down through the depths, through the waters, down to the bottoms of the mountains, the roots of the mountains, um, which in Israelite cosmology is like, you know, all the way at the bottom of the sea, and then at the gates of the underworld. And he's like, just about to slip in. And then there's God pulling him mm. up. And his prayer goes into the temple. So instead of 
Jonah entering into temple space and being reintegrated into the community, being able to tell his story in uh, the congregation and to be celebrated by them and to celebrate with them, he's still weirdly partially um, dead because he's not fully integrated into the community and he's no longer in his land. So if you think about like Ezekiel and the story mm. of the bones, just having the bones resurrected isn't enough for these sort of zombies who have been revivified. They need to be back in the land of Israel. So being alive isn't quite being fully alive if you're not with your community and in your land. Mm. It's a kind of indigenous worldview that I don't think that we always appreciate. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So he like emerges um, not in his land, distant from his people, obviously not where he wants to be, has to follow through with God's command to go and preach to Nineveh, um, dragging his feet, obviously. Yeah. And then, um, and then that, that one line that he tells them that Nineveh is going to be overthrown and there's no like, you know, if you repent, there's none of that. It's just like, you're going to be overthrown or, you know, 40 days, whatever. That's it. Um, so when he says that, I want to ask you, like, to me, because he and Jonah knows that they're they're going to repent. He knows that, which is the reason why he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want them saved. But he's intentionally giving like a false prophecy. Is that right? Or am I well, off? Well, no, 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 no. I think there are a number of ways to read it, right? So I guess one of the questions is, how do you see Jonah in chapter three? So is he dragging his feet? You know, is he still the reluctant prophet mm. who sort of marches one day into a city that's supposed to be a three days walk across and is like, you know, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overturned, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My job, I'm out of here. Yeah. Or is he um, kind of the opposite of the anti-prophet that we saw in chapter one and is now sort of a super prophet who barely has to do anything mm. in order for God's word to take hold. So is it a story about the power of God's word? Is it a story about Jonah, like sort of enacting this different persona in chapter three? And we see what happens there. And with the prophecy itself, a lot of people have noticed, uh, starting with very early interpreters like Rashi and Ibn Ezra, um, that hafak has two meanings. So it can mean to be turned over, as mm. in destroyed, which is what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, but can also mean to turn around, mm. as in to repent. So if, as some Jewish interpreters say, Jonah is concerned about his prophetic reputation here, so, you know, <laughs> the, the catch for a prophet is that, you know, they're supposed to announce judgment and I think ideally cause people to repent. But if people do repent and the judgment is stayed, then they're accused of being false prophets because their prophecy didn't come true. Well, you said we were going to be destroyed, you know? So it's kind of like, is this the double speak in this message so that either way he can't be accused of being a false prophet? You know? <laughs> I think playing with that idea. Yeah. Either oh, way, I'm right. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, and I like the way you kind of position like, well, who is this Jonah coming out? Like, what is, is he still dragging his feet or is he like empowered and like, he just kind of like had some sort of repentance experience in the fish. Like, so who is he now? And then yeah. is he mumbling this or is this like, this is going to do it. All I need to do is speak this one sentence and they're going to do what God wants <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> or not, you know, not. I'm I've done my job. Type yeah. Of well, in Islam, it's kind of funny because in Islam, um, in the Quran, a lot of uh, the stories about Israelite prophets are told in order to reassure Muhammad that nobody ever listens to prophets. So nobody's listening to your message, Muhammad. Don't worry. 
nobody ever listens, except in the case of Jonah. <laughs> the only people who ever responded to a prophecy were the Ninevites. <laughs> only successful prophet ever in the history of prophecy. That's hilarious. And um, what also cracked me to, cracked me up too is the the response where it talks about, and you mentioned this, the sackcloth uh, being put not only on the people, but on the animals. Yeah. That's, that's curious. It's very curious. Yes. And, you know, I was telling my students that when you interpret a text, you have to make a lot of decisions, even though you're working closely with the text and, you know, reading it and a number of different contexts and you're looking at it in the Syriac and in the Greek and you're trying to make sense of this language and figure out what the author maybe intended and what's the most sort of, um, what's the most plain sense reading of this. You still have to make so many decisions yourself as a reader about what the book is about and what kind of larger hermeneutical stance you want to take. And for me, I was like, I do not want to be the person who says, Jonah's not funny. You know, so some people will say, well, dressing, dressing animals up in sackcloth was a, a time honored tradition in the ancient world. And it's not funny, you know, <laughs> and so I think I think that um, it actually is supposed to be funny and it's supposed to communicate to us, I think, that everyone in the city from the little babies to the domesticated animals who were, in fact, part of the community. Um, who served the community, who lived in people's houses, you know, it'd be like saying, oh, of course we dressed the dog up in sackcloth when we were all repenting, you know, maybe, of course the dog got a Halloween costume when we went out, you know, so they're sort of uh, positioned as integral to the community. And so they all mm. respond in this insanely over the top way. So I guess that's the other question is, is the repentance or... I mean, I think it's right to say there's not something that really looks like repentance in the ancient world that resembles our modern notions of repentance. Mm. So are these acts of turning, maybe that's a better way of describing it, are they meant to be understood as absurd, as sort of a parody, as a completely over-the-top performance, a kind of farce, or are they sincere? Are they meant to show the power of God's word, no matter the vessel, no matter the messenger who delivers it, no matter how uh, lame of a speaker he may be or how uncompelling his words actually are? Is it about the power of the word? So I think mm. the book kind of lets us go either way. I myself go with chapter three being a comedy and uh, in terms of like its plot. So the sort of the way that things resolve and the way that characters and events uh, unfold in this unexpected way. So it's all sort of contrary to your expectations. So if you know anything about the Assyrian empire, even just in passing, you do not expect them to respond to Jonah's message. Um, and not only do they respond, but they respond ridiculously. So, yeah. And then God responds ridiculously, you know, like maybe, you know, the, you know, the king of Nineveh says the king of Nineveh, right? Which is not anything, it's not an official title, right? So the empire of Assyria or, or the emperor of Assyria uh, would be uh, how you would refer to mm. this guy. So the king of Nineveh gives us a clue that this is kind of a stock character. So like King Ahasuerus in Esther. I mean, you think of King Ahasuerus, he's a buffoon, right? He's sort of mm. enamored with his own power. Um, he is uh, kind of reacting in these over-the-top ways to things that people do. So Vashti doesn't come to his banquet and he makes a decree that goes out through the entire empire about women and how they have to obey their husbands and this sort of thing. So, so in a way, this king of Nineveh is shown, I think, as being somewhat gullible, somewhat silly. And I think that the telling the animals to put on sackcloth and, uh, is, is kind of an extension mm. of this parodic, um, this kind of absurd presentation of this king. Yeah. It's, also great. it's also great that 
you know, all the people are already responding to the word, right? They're all starting to fast and, um, and you know, turn from their evil ways. And then the king's like, well, I'm going to write an edict and make sure that everyone knows that now they're supposed to, you know, turn from their evil ways. And, you know, it's already happening. He's totally late to the game and yet sort of perceives himself as all important. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, Jonah doesn't stay in town. Like he just, he's done, he's out and out, miserable, right? He's out in this scorching sun and he, and, and I just like feel bad for him. Like he's just like, Poor Jonah. for a variety of reasons, you just feel bad for him. I'm glad you have sympathy for him because a lot of people will read this and be like, oh, what? You're a little hot. <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm fainting. You know, this sort of like understanding of Jonah is sort of histrionic and stuff. So I think that actually having some sympathy for him is the better readerly position you know? <laughs> while appreciating his dramatic mm -hmm. performance nonetheless. But anyway, go ahead. You had a question. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. So like, so as he's like, uh, you know, he's looking out, he's miserable. Uh, God gives him a little bit of a shade with this plant. Um, as he's looking out, is he, um, is he looking to see like, are they really going to stick with this? Or is it more of like, I knew this was going to happen. Now I'm just kind of miserable. Just, I'm just going to sit out here and die, I guess. I don't, I don't, what, what do you think he's, he's thinking there? Yeah. You know, so I think that I can't remember if I said this before, but in the Hebrew Bible, you don't tend to have God saying people are forgiven and forever saved hmm. ad infinitum. What you have more often is a sort of stay of execution, a temporary reprieve. Mm. So, and this is true in Islam as well, so that you have to keep repenting. You have to keep on the path of the straight and narrow. You have to keep following God and, you know, living your life according to Torah in order to remain in God's good graces. So that that is a, a relational ongoing reprieve or salvation or redemption right and i think that christians who think about forgiveness as being a sort of once and for all deal you know so you say you believe in jesus and you're good to go man you're in heaven <laughs> and i don't think that's the operative theology in the hebrew bible so if jonah is sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen he may be thinking Nineveh is going to start acting up again. They're going to start acting like the Assyrians again. And maybe I'll just wait here and see how long this supposed repentance holds up. It's also, I mean, he wants to register his complaint with God, which he does initially, right? And again, this is very much in line with prophetic traditions. So Jonah says, you know, if you're a God of justice, what are you doing? Like, what's with all this mind-changing compassion stuff? Like, what is right. what is okay about that, you know? And I, I don't know if you read my work on chapter four. I have a um, kind of elaborate interpretation of what's going on in that final scene. I think it's really obscure um, and my attempt to make some sense of it is one attempt, um, but it relies on reading those last two verses um, as a declarative as opposed to as a rhetorical question. So mm. scene ends with supposedly God saying, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh? Meaning, of course I'm concerned about Nineveh. But there isn't a marker uh, in the Hebrew of a question. Hmm. So, um, and there are all kinds of other grammatical reasons why it doesn't read best as a question. So I read it as, um, and I am not concerned about Nineveh. I do not have any pity for Nineveh, which is actually the way you're supposed to execute justice. So you think about the statue. Hmm. Uh, of justice with a blindfold on. 
So in the revival, God is supposed to execute, and as are the elders um, and the judges, they're supposed to execute justice without pity. So without regard for how one might feel, justice needs to be meted out in these, you know, kind of uncompromising, unemotional ways. And so I think what God is saying there is you can count on me not to account for pity in my judgments. So that kind of shifts things in terms of my understanding of the book. I think it is about God defending God's decisions or God's um, uh, commitment to executing justice, to judging when it's called for. So Jonah's like, what the hell? You're always being so compassionate. You're changing your mind. God says, no, I'm not. You know, so this plant that comes up over Jonah, I think is kind of uh, representative of the tree of Assyria, the cedar of Assyria, which grows really tall until God decides, you know, now it's hubris for this tree to be so tall and I'm going to chop it down. And so that, you know, we can go back and sort of flesh that out a little bit more. But basically, God is telling Jonah, both in the symbolic action with the plant and with his final words, that God sure as hell plans on destroying Nineveh in the future. Yeah, that's a very interesting. Um, I never heard that interpretation of the last line because I feel like it leaves you hanging. Like, yeah. it's like when I, was, when I was reading it to my daughter, she's like, that's it? I was like, that's where it ends. It's like, well, what does Jonah think? Like, there's no, yeah. there's no response. You're just, you're just left hanging. And yeah. So that's a... Yeah. Well, and either way, even if God says, don't worry, Jonah, I'm going yeah. to do what you think I should do here. I'm actually committed to justice. We don't know what Jonah thinks about that. Mm -hmm. He's still silent. So Whatever happens in the book, whether Jonah is won over by God, which is what God's arguably going for in the book, is to get Jonah to sort of come along with him. We don't know if Jonah finds this a compelling argument or if Jonah has come around to want to be in relationship with God again or if he still wants to mm. die. We don't know. So it does still leave it on us to respond to God's declarative statement in this case. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a, um, what a powerful, uh, book. And like you just shared, like how complicated it is, like yeah. seemingly simple, seemingly simple at a cursory reading. But as you start to like dig in, as you've explained, like it gets so complicated based on how you're viewing Jonah and this Oracle and then what God is doing. And then Jonah's position like it's it's so complicated, um, and I wanted to ask you about like as as these different traditions have looked at Jonah uh, as satire. Uh, there's various genres. How do you kind of see Jonah? How does it fit in as far as like a genre for you? Yeah, well, in terms of the entire book, all four chapters together, I don't really weigh in on the book as a whole as a genre, other than to say um, it's a story of a prophet and it gestures toward uh, prophetic literature in that it raises questions that arise as you're reading prophetic literature. So there's a scholar whose name is um, Ehud Ben-Zvi, and he says that Jonah is meta-prophetic literature. Mm. So that it's taking all of these themes and questions that emerge as you're reading prophetic literature and focusing your attention on them by making them big, but also focusing on the relationship between God and Jonah. So not so much on the word of God, as we already talked about, you know, you only get five of those, the sort of oracle language, whereas most prophetic or prophetic books are primarily made up of God's words that the prophet is delivering. Here, the, the, the focus is on the relationship between the two of them. So I do try to make some proposals about genre chapter by chapter 
but the book as a whole, there isn't really anything like it in the Hebrew Bible or in the ancient world. So there have been, oh gosh, I don't know, like dozens and dozens of proposals for the best genre uh, to sort of slide mm. into. And I think that in part, they all have, or many of them, have something to contribute to the way we understand the book's genre, but none of them really quite capture it. Um, so the way that the book has come together is kind of unprecedented. Mm. That's so interesting. That's interesting. Well, I know we're up for an hour, but I wanted to ask you one last question, and that's around, um, like, you've done almost a 500-page commentary digging into Jonah. And now I'm wondering, like, you personally, as you read it, not only as a scholar, critically, but also, like, as a Christian devotionally, like, how how do you kind of, like, when you read Jonah now, I'm wondering, like, some takeaways or things that God reminds you in this in this story. Oh, well, what I always say to my students about reading the Hebrew Bible and why it is so life-giving to me, why it's such a, so they always ask me like, well, how do you read spiritually and critically? And I always say, I don't know the difference. <laughs> it's all one for me. It's all melded <laughs> together. So, um, so to ask the questions and to be drawn into the world of the text and to be always seeing something new there, that's what helps me relate to God more fully, um, relate to my own faith more fully. So getting to talk to people about it, you know, to have this conversation piece. I feel like, um, you know, we do this sometimes with TV shows that kind of enter into the public domain. Like when Game of Thrones was on and everybody I knew was watching Game of Thrones, <laughs> we'd get together and we'd talk about you know, whether Danny was really evil or not, you know, and we'd talk about Jon Snow and is he naive? Is he just trying to be here? You know, so we'd have these like really in-depth conversations about these characters in this world. And I think that's what ideally as faith communities we do with the Bible, you know, and it should be every bit as controversial and provocative as Game of Thrones mm. as we engage it, because then it draws us in, you know, and it also gives us a little distance, right? So we're not talking about like, why did my family member suffer this terrible illness or have this terrible thing happen to them? But why did this character act in this way? How did God as a character interact with this person you know, and it's different in every text. So that to always be aware of the diversity leaves you with space to live in this alternative universe almost and get to know the the way that people react, have reacted to God, do react to God, the way that God responds to them. You know, as I was saying, the fact that a prophet is actually meant to influence God and God's decisions uh, is really powerful, right? Because your relationship with this God matters to this God. So, so that's what I would say about it. I love that. I love that, that questioning mindset and like, let's explore this together. And I love how you brought in like Game of Thrones, like, like taking a book like this and let's like talk about the character of Jonah and what he did and his relationship with God. And like, what a great way to like view scripture. Is like just hearing from the community. Because sometimes we we simplify things too too much and just like, well, I don't even believe he actually was swallowed by a fish. Okay, great. Well, that's like part of it, but there's a lot more happening here in this text. Yeah, yeah. Well, then what does that mean? Why does the story yeah. then introduce this fish who swallows a man? Yeah, yeah. What about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Uh, well, Dr. Erickson, I want to thank you so much for your time, for your fascinating new book. And um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Jonah. Yeah, thank you. Next time you got to bring your daughter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she would love to meet you. <laughs> I don't think I could get my 17-year-old son to talk that much about Jonah, but, you know, I can try. When he was little, he did love the uh, Lego brick Bible. We read that over and over. Oh, and over. yeah. 
was our, that was our way in. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Amy Erickson about her insightful new commentary on the book of Jonah, which is published by Erdman's. She provides deep insights into ways to understand this disobedient prophet through academic interpretation, along with different ways that Christians, Jews, and Muslims have understood these Hebrew texts. So how has this conversation on the book of Jonah impacted you? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter at Dogato Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at MikeDogato.org. Next time, we're chatting with Dr. Anthony Avini about his research into the development of ancient creation stories around the world. He provides insights into the similarities and differences on creation myths across Babylonian, Aztec, Maya, Hindu, Navajo, African, and countless others. Dr. Avini is an astrophysicist, and his latest book called Creation Stories is published by Yale University Press. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll chat more next time.